All right. Open up your Bibles to Galatians 5, 13 through 18, and we're going to get right into the Word of God. And if you're joining us here in person, it'll be up on the screen behind me. If you're joining us online, I want to say thank you for joining us. It'll be on your screen at home. But Galatians 5, 13 through 18, this is God's Word. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Let's pray. Father, we give you all the glory and we worship you and we know that you are always with us and we pray and ask, Lord, that you would open our minds and our hearts now to your word. Father, we desperately need your word. And we thank you, Lord, that every week we have an opportunity and freedom to come here and to listen and with your help to begin to walk in them. And so, Lord God, thank you. Thank you for everyone that made time here. Thank you for uh, students who are beginning to come back. Uh, we pray that, that you will bless them, that they will have an amazing new year. Uh, thank you for everyone else who is continuing. Uh, we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, well, good morning. It's great to have you guys here today joining us. And if you are here for the very first time, then praise God, you caught us on the very last message of this short series that we've been in. So you made it to the very last one. But this series is titled Love in the Last Days. And we want to invite you back because this is the last message in this series, but next week we're going to start a whole new series in the book of Joel. So please come back for that. But we're going to be looking at how in the most distressed time, this prophet rose up and began to declare the word of God to bring hope and promises to God's people. And so it's an amazing book. But that will be next week. But for this entire year up until now, we've been talking about the theme of this year, which is basically be the church. So that has been the theme this entire year. And starting a few weeks ago, we began to look at the context of being the church because we are not just the church in any old time, any old place, just here in Riverside. doesn't matter. No. But there is a clear context in which we are the church. It is the last days. We are called to be the church in the last days. And so this context matters. Amen? It matters. You know, uh, several of you guys are students, but would it matter? whether you are a student during the last week of finals versus a student in the first week of school, I mean, would it make a difference? I think so, right? It would make a big difference. It would deeply affect the way you would pay attention to your professor, right? The way you would respond to the assignments, the way you would manage your time, the way you would see friends or not see friends, the way you would live your life. So everything would change, or at least it should. I know some students, it doesn't matter what time of year, they just do the same thing. Unfortunately, some Christians are like that too. But when you look at the word of God, it matters that we are the church in the last days. You know, Gordon Fee is a world-class New Testament scholar, but one time he was asked by one of his students, what would you focus on, Dr. Fee, if you ever went back to pastoring a local church? And this is what he said without missing a beat. No matter how long it might take, I was set about with a single passion to help a local body of believers recapture the New Testament church's understanding of itself as an eschatological, in other words, last days community. Okay, that's a pretty amazing answer. And so according to Fee, who arguably knows the New Testament better than most people on this planet, he said, if I were to teach the Bible again on a weekly basis, if I had to focus on anything, what would I focus on? I would focus on the church being an eschatological last days community. So that is what would matter to him. So I think that's what matters to us as well. But we are called to be the church in the last days. But what are the last days? Okay, what are we talking about? Well, like I've been saying, the last days is not just the events coming up surrounding Jesus' second coming, but it's the entire time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. Okay, it is the final leg in God's redemptive plan. It is the period of time when the Spirit of God is preparing his church for Christ's coming. 
At the very same time, the spirit of Antichrist is preparing the world for the Antichrist coming. So all of this is taking place in the last days. In fact, it's been going on for 2,000 years. The Apostle John said way back in the first century, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. He said that 2,000 years ago. And so as the Antichrist spirit is working continuously in the world to prepare the world for the Antichrist to come, the lawless one, and this is why lawlessness is increasing, at the same time, the Holy Spirit is preparing the church for Christ's coming. All of this is in the last days. And so as Jesus' return draws near, the world will increasingly be marked by certain characteristics. And this matters. Again, context matters, right? It matters that we are trying to be the church during these times. But increasingly, as Jesus' return gets closer and closer, things are going to mark these days. So, for example, we've looked at how there will be widespread moral corruption. It's not just people just being people and just kind of getting things out of their system. No, it is a moral corruption energized by spiritual corruption. And it is widespread. Okay, we've already talked about many examples of this happening right now. And one result of this widespread moral and spiritual corruption is distraction. And so we've looked at this as well. But at a massive level, people are going to be increasingly more and more distracted with living their own lives. And that's been happening throughout history at all times, but even more so. They're going to be distracted by making money, raising kids, eating out, traveling, getting a good career, finishing school, streaming billions of hours a day, streaming content on all different kinds of media. And none of it is bad, and yet it is massively distracting. Massively. So Jesus talked about this, and he called it going back to the days of Noah. So Jesus said in Matthew 24, 37, As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days, talking about the days of Noah, before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So it will be when the coming of the Son of Man. So this is it's very clear. But as we get closer and closer to Jesus' coming, it's going to be increasingly like the days of Noah. Massive moral corruption energized by spiritual corruption. And the result of that is massive distraction. People just living their lives. No concern in the world for anything regarding God, the last days, the gospel, his coming. So the last days will be marked by that. Another thing is the last days will be marked by widespread deception that will cover the earth. And so we've also looked at this. But false teachers, false teaching, popping up everywhere, in bookstores, on YouTube, even in the pulpits, right? And again, I don't have to mention examples because you can think of them. Even right now, you're probably thinking of some examples. But based on Jesus' teachings in Matthew 24 and 25, you could say deception is the greatest sign of the last days. Why? Because Jesus mentioned it more than any other sign. He kept saying, beware, be careful, watch out. There's deception. Deception's coming. Deception's coming. Some people call it the greatest sign of the last days. And so here's what makes deception so deadly. Why did Jesus warn us so repeatedly? It's because people who are deceived don't know it. That's the very definition of deception. And I've said this in the past, but we could be deceived right now and not know it. That's the very definition. And if you know you're deceived, then you're no longer deceived. And so this is why it is so dangerous, so deadly, and Jesus repeatedly warned in the last days, this is the characteristic. More and more people are going to be deceived. More and more there will be deceivers. So this is another mark. And then finally, in the last days, there will be an increase in lawlessness. So there will be an increase in lawlessness. So Jesus said in Matthew 24, 12, lawlessness will be increased. And the love of many will grow cold. You know, I mentioned how in the past, I wasn't really focused on that, but when I started out in ministry, even just 20 years ago, a short 20 years ago, I was really focused much more on legalism, talked a lot about that, preached on that all the time. But I shifted gears recently in the last five years. It's because obviously, as you look around, that is not the big issue, but the big issue is more and more people are living lawless lives. 
And so not just me, but many pastors are really tuning into that. And so Jesus is clear. In the last days, lawlessness will go up while love will go down. And that's not what we would expect, right? That's not what we would think Jesus would say. We might think that Jesus would say, you know, as lawlessness goes up, obedience will go down. But he didn't say that. He said, as lawlessness rises, love will decrease. Why? Well, it's because lawlessness is a deep hostility to God's law, but love is what? Okay, what is love? Jesus said love is the fulfillment of God's law. So they're directly opposed to each other, kind of like the opposite ends of a seesaw. You can't have both. You will either have one or the other. When one goes up, the other goes down. When the other goes up, the other one goes down. So you can't have both. And yet, isn't this exactly what our culture says today, in our day? We're living in the last days. But our culture today says, no, you can have both lawlessness and love. In fact, as they're throwing off God's law, in the very act of that, they say, we're doing it in the name of love. Okay, that's our culture right now. I mean, look at how many times the word love is used in our culture to promote the very things that are against God's law. So in the very act of throwing off God's law, they say this is love. And to me, this is one of the most telling signs of where we are right now. This is very telling. You know, my father-in-law, uh, he lives with us, my wife and I, but he is 82 years old. My, my, my kids can't believe that, that he was actually born uh, before World War II or during World War II. But he is still healthy, going strong. But when he was a young boy, lawlessness was already increasing around the world during that time. And you could read the history books and you see that. And love was also decreasing in the world. In fact, right when he was born, he was in the midst of two wars, World War II and then shortly after that, the Korean War. And many people during that time would have acknowledged, yeah, this is happening. Lawlessness is going up. Love is going down. And more and more people are even practicing lawlessness. A lot of people would have acknowledged that. But you know what they would have never said? They would have never said that lawlessness is love. Okay, they would never say that. But now in our time, lawlessness is love. Okay, it's love. And so this massive shift has happened in just one person's lifetime. But lawlessness has become love. And so it's hard to imagine where the world is headed from here. Okay, where do you go once lawlessness has become love? Okay, where do we go from here? Well, Aldous Huxley, he calls this kind of future a brave new world. You know, uh, during the pandemic, I decided to read that book. I felt it was appropriate. It was like, let me look at this book. I've already, always heard about it, finally picked it up and read it. But he described this world of basic lawlessness, and yet there was free love everywhere, and he said it's a brave new world. Well, the Bible has a different name for this kind of future. It calls it the last days. Okay, we are living in the last days. So anyway, this is what we've been looking at. This is the context in which now we are called to be the church. And so some of you guys, if you care, you would be asking, then what do we do? Okay, what should we do if we're living in this kind of time? And things are actually going to get worse and increase in all these things. Well, Jesus tells us in his great discourse on the last days in Matthew 24 and 25, he makes it very clear what his people should do. But he said, be watchful and be faithful. Be watchful and faithful. And the primary way that believers can be faithful to Christ in the last days, and I believe other teachings of Christ point to this, is we must love God with everything we are, and love our neighbors as ourselves. So love God and love others. That is how we're going to be faithful to Christ in these days. So as lawlessness is going up and up, as love is going down and down, what do we need to do? The exact opposite. But we need to increasingly love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. So we must love one another and love the people around us in our community. We have to love them with truth, we have to love them with service, with compassion, with the gospel, but we need to love them. Okay, that's how we're going to be faithful. Okay, Jesus said, this is how the world will know you are my disciples. Okay, I love the image that the Bible gives in Philippians of stars in the sky, and as the night sky gets darker and darker, the stars do what? They become brighter and brighter. Okay, that's what Jesus wants the church to be. As the love of many are growing colder, we grow hotter. That's another way to say it. We are shining brighter. We are growing hotter. So this is what we've been talking about. This is the entire series in a nutshell. And today what I want to do is I want to close it out by talking about 
well, then how can we now really love our neighbor? We've talked about loving God, but how do we really love our neighbor? How can we be propelled to do this? And more than talk about specific ways to love, we already covered that a few weeks ago, I want to talk about the source of power to love. Today, I want to talk about how can we be propelled to love one another? And this is really important because on our own, we can't. Okay, I, know, I know how it works. Okay, you guys come here, you sit here quietly and politely, you listen to the message, and then you go out, and we're having lunch, and everything's gone, <laughs> right? It's just out, out, out of the brain, right? We don't remember what the message was, and that's fine. That's why you come back. That's why I repeat things. But we don't know, right? We don't remember. And even if we did, we don't have the power. Okay, how do I love? In these last days, how do I actually be a countercultural example? Yeah, how can we be a church where we don't just draw natural friends together? Anybody can do that. But how can we draw natural enemies together? And that was, in fact, the case in the Galatian church, which we're going to look at. But in that church and in all the New Testament churches, natural enemies were brought together. I mean, we're talking about that kind of love. How do we do that? What kind of power do we have for that? And so I believe Paul answers this question in our passage in Galatians 5. Okay, he gives us the source of power. And Galatians is famous for Paul's passionate defense of the gospel. It's one of the most lively letters he ever wrote. And what was Paul fighting okay, so passionately in this letter? Well, there was a group of Jewish Christians that came into these churches in southern Galatia. And they were basically followers of Christ, but they were still very Jewish. And they clung to their Judaism while professing faith in Christ. And then they came into these churches and they began preaching a different gospel. So this was happening, and then Paul heard about it. But they were preaching a gospel that demanded faith in Christ plus obedience to the law. So yeah, you need to believe in Jesus, sure. We're all Christians here. But don't you know that the law is the way you're going to be righteous? You need to... Believe in that. You need to obey that. That's where righteousness comes from. So they began to preach a gospel of righteousness that did not come by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Okay, that is not how they believe righteousness came. But it was a righteousness, rather, that came through faith in Christ plus obedience to the law. So this was the Judaizers, and in fairness to them, they really wanted to preach this because they cared about righteousness. I don't think they were all evil, hell-bent on corrupting the church, but they really cared about righteousness and they saw God's law as the way to achieve it. So they wouldn't have been okay with our culture today, this increase in lawlessness. They would have been against that because they recognized that all of us, we have a sinful nature deep inside of us and they saw all the problems that the sin nature produces. So they were offering a solution. Look, okay, we're all sinners here. We all screw up, but here's a solution. It's the law. Yeah, Jesus, you need him, we're all Christian, but you need to obey the law. And so this is what they offered. Unfortunately, it was the wrong solution. Jesus plus the law, that was the wrong solution. So Paul comes along now, he hears about it, and he condemned this false gospel. He condemned it. And then he defended the true gospel. I like what this one Bible scholar said. But in this letter, Paul defended the true gospel in three ways. But he did it through testimony. So he shared about his own testimony. He did it through theology. And then finally, he did it through transformation. Okay, and that's the one I want to focus on. But Paul defended the true gospel by showing the Galatians the life-transforming power in the gospel. Don't you know, once you put your faith in Jesus Christ, by grace through faith alone, the Spirit comes within you. There is life-transforming power. And so he uses that to defend the gospel. And this is what I want to look at today. But if you're going to truly love your neighbor, and I'm going to truly love my neighbor, then we need this life-transforming power. Because again, the moment we leave, we're going to forget. Or even if you remember, we can't do it. At least not in a genuine, sustained way. We can't do it. We will not love our neighbor. You will not love your neighbor. I will not love my neighbor. So then how does the gospel empower us to love our neighbor? Well, there are a few different ways the gospel helps us. First, there's a, go there's a freedom to receive. There's a freedom to receive. Look at Galatians 5.13 through 14. 
For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So right there, Paul is giving the main point of the entire passage, in fact, the entire letter. This is the main theme. For you are called to freedom, brothers. And in fact, right there, he's just repeating what he said earlier in chapter 5, verse 1. I'll read it. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then that you do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So he's talking about freedom, and he says Christ has freed us from this yoke of slavery. But what is this? Okay, what is this yoke of slavery? Well, if you read through the letter, it's very clear. Paul is talking about the demands of the law. The demands of the law that you must keep in order to be righteous before God. And he calls that a heavy yoke that is placed on the Galatians. And so we all understand this if you think about it. But we all know what it's like to have God's moral commands constantly digging into our conscience. Have you looked at the Ten Commandments lately? Are you following them from the heart consistently? We know what it's like to fall short. We know what it's like to not love our neighbor as ourselves. We know that what that feels like. We all know the feeling of never measuring up and the games we play to try to look like we're measuring up. Okay, we know that. Like justifying our sin. Okay, trying to make excuses for the things we do. Pretending that it's not that bad. Okay, only showing our good side. Okay, just showing one side of our lives here at church. Lifting ourselves up by comparing ourselves to others. Okay, these are all the different things we do. Or at other times, we know how we grind away trying to obey God. Okay, in our better moments, we go, okay, we shouldn't play these games. We should really try to follow God. And then you enter the grind. And it's a grind. And it's a grind. And you're obeying, sort of, but there's no joy. There's no power. There's no transformation. So what is this? This is the yoke that Paul's talking about. So there is a heavy yoke that is laid upon all of us. And so here's the point. Don't you know Christ has set you free? Christ has set you free. That is what a Christian is. If you're not set free from that, you're not even a Christian. And so this is what Paul is saying. Don't you know, Galatians, Christ has set you free from all those games you play, from that conscience that is constantly being seared and stabbed because you're falling short, and then the grind that we go into to try to obey in our better moments. I mean, Christ has set you free. But, Paul says, but it's not a freedom to be lawless, which is what the Judaizers thought. This is why they came in with the law so big and heavy like a big stick. They're like, you guys can't be lawless here, right? They thought it was going to lead to lawlessness. But Paul said, I agree with that. This isn't freedom. This is not a freedom to be lawless. You know, it's interesting, but Paul, after talking about freedom in Galatians 5.13, if you continue to read, he goes on to talk immediately about what? Slavery. Slavery. why, Why would Paul do that? Well, I believe this is what he's trying to say. He's saying we're all going to be slaves to something, Okay, we're all going to be slaves to something. But he's saying, Galatians, don't you know you're going to be a slave to something? But now that Christ has set you free, make sure that you don't become a slave again to the wrong thing. For example, the law and the flesh. So don't become a slave again to the wrong thing, but rather be slaves now to the right thing, like loving one another. This is what Paul is saying. Now that Christ has set you free, be slaves to the right thing, like loving one one another. When Paul says serve one another, in the Greek, it literally means be voluntary slaves to one another. Okay, do you see your relationships with one another like that? Okay, when I come to church, I'm honest. I'll be honest. I don't think like that. <laughs> Even though I'm called to serve this church and serve all of you, I don't think of myself as a slave to all of you. Maybe the pastor, but not the slave. And yet this is what the Bible says. Literally, be voluntary slaves to one another. So what is Paul saying? Basically, he's saying, remember, brothers and sisters, you were called to freedom. If Christ hasn't set you free, you're not even a Christian, but you have been set free. So don't be slaves to the flesh, the wrong kind of slavery, but be slaves to one another. This is what Paul's saying. But it's like, huh? What? I thought you just said that I'm free. Now why would you say I'm set free from one kind of slavery, but now I'm a slave to a different kind of slavery? Like, Why would you talk about that, Paul? Well, the answer is, is because the kind of freedom we have is not the kind of freedom that the world thinks about. 
The kind of freedom where he's like, woo, I'm free, I could do whatever I want. Paul is saying, no, the kind of freedom Christ has set you free for is different. But it's a gospel freedom. It's a gospel freedom. And gospel freedom doesn't make us throw away all the indebtedness to people and run carefree into the world. Again, it doesn't go, yeah, you're free, so go do whatever you want. Live your life however. That's not gospel freedom. But rather, gospel freedom humbles us, and it makes us more indebted to love others. It makes us more indebted. Okay, let me explain a little differently. But what, why, right? Why? Well, let me explain. The kind of freedom that has zero indebtedness and makes you run into the world carefree, the kind where you have paid off all your own debts, Okay, the, the kind of freedom that has zero indebtedness is the kind where you have paid off all your own debts. Okay, that's the kind of freedom that the world understands. And Paul's saying that's not the gospel freedom here. So then what kind of freedom does the world normally understand? Well, think about, like, let's, uh, let's say a prisoner. He gets 10 years in prison for armed robbery. He gets caught, convicted. Now he's in prison for 10 years. And then let's say now at the end of 10 years, he's free. Why? Because he's paid his time. And so now the, the guards lead him out of his cell, lead him out of the courtyard, opens the main gate, and he's out, right? He is free. I'm a free man. And now let me ask you, as he's walking away from that prison yard, is he going to be filled with love for his prison guards and for the state and for the courts that has let him free? Is he going to be just filled with love? Heck no. <laughs> right. Why? Because he knows I paid my debts. That's why I'm free. I paid off my debts. I did my time. I'm not thankful to you clowns, right? I'm free. I'm out of here. And so that's the kind of freedom that most people think about. I am free. I have paid off my debts. I've achieved this on my own. You know, a lot of times these days people talk about financial freedom. Times are hard. Inflation's high. Financial freedom. Well, if you work your butt off and you finally get to that place where you are financially free, you can do whatever you want, travel, I mean, are you going to be filled with love and use that money for others? Maybe, right? Maybe out of guilt. Maybe you look at somebody else that you like and they're in need. Maybe you might help a little bit, but, but is that going to be the primary motivator of your life? Probably not. Why? I earned this money. This is the freedom I earned. And yet Paul says, no, gospel freedom is radically different. Why? Because someone else has paid off your debts at great cost to themselves. That is completely different. And so now, because of somebody else paying off your debts, now you're free. You're free just as much as the man who paid off his debts, his own debts. You're just as free as that person, but it's a very different kind of freedom, right? It's very different. Because this freedom makes you indebted to the one who freed you. Okay, we need to understand this as believers. Christ has set you free. You are truly free. You don't have to do a single thing now to be in eternity with him and be in paradise. You don't have to do a single thing now to be declared righteous in the course of God. You are free. That conscience that constantly bothers you, you just don't understand how free you are already. You can cast that aside now. You are free, but this not, it's not that kind of freedom though. This freedom humbles you and you are more indebted to the one who freed you. You know, I remember one time, a long time ago, uh, there was a young man at my church that I attended in college. And I remember one time we were at a prayer meeting and this guy and I, we were uh, sharing a prayer request and we were talking. And he shared with me, you know, um, please pray for my uncle because his kidneys are failing him. And so he needs a kidney transplant. And so I went recently and took some tests and I matched. And this guy, he's only like 20 years old, but he matched. And so he said, you know what, I think I want to donate my kidney. I was like, whoa, this is pretty big, right? So I'm like, yeah, of course I'll pray. But he, but he really was, was wanting to donate his kidney. And so this is what he shared, and he asked for prayer. Now, I don't know if he actually went through with it. I think he did. Uh, I didn't really follow up afterwards, but, but I think he did. But imagine if you were the person receiving his kidney. This young man, he has a whole life ahead of him, and now at his... In his 20s, he's going to donate one of his kidneys, and he's going to be, you know, affected by that, right, for the rest of his life. But imagine this person donating his kidney to you, somebody that is not even related to you. You might not even know this person very well. So at great cost to himself, now you're set free, right, from this illness, 
from sure death, you are set free. And leaving that hospital, are you going to be like, woo, I'm free. I'm going to like go back to drinking again, <laughs> right? Woo. I mean, is that the attitude you're going to have? No, you're going to be, hopefully, okay, if you're a normal human being, you're going to be like, wow, I am so thankful. I'm indebted. I'm indebted to that person. And I'm going to, you know, even if that person doesn't know me very well or sees the way I live, I, I'm going to try to live well. I'm going to try to live well and not get into these things again. That's going to cause me to have these illnesses. And so it's a very different kind of freedom. So you get the picture. It's a very different kind of freedom. You're going to use your freedom instead of doing whatever you want, living whatever way you want, but rather to love and serve others in the same way you are loved and you are served. So this is gospel freedom. This is what Paul's talking about. Gospel freedom frees us to love. And that's why if there is no love, and you look at a group of people and they call themselves Christian, but there's really no love there, then you really have to wonder, do you know Christ? Have you truly been set free? And are you a true believer? Because Jesus said, you will, they will know you by your love. Because that's what a true Christian is known by. Gospel freedom frees us to love. Jesus Christ, at great cost to himself, paid off all of our debts, even the death that leads to death. And so now we live indebted to him. And not only to him, but to his church and to everyone around us, right? All human beings, our neighbors, we are indebted. This is why Paul said, for you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Through love, serve one another. I mentioned earlier, it literally means through love, be enslaved to each other. Live as if you are a slave to the person next to you. So this is what gospel freedom does. It makes us indebted to love. And this is why in chapter 5, where Paul is talking about freedom, he also mentions love repeatedly. He mentions it four times, Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Galatians 5.13, but through love, serve one another. Galatians 5.14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love. Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. I mean, he's talking about freedom. The whole chapter is about freedom, but he keeps bringing up love. He keeps coming back to that, love, love. This is what gospel freedom produces. So let me ask, has the gospel set you free? And how do you know? Well, you're going to begin to love. You will love. And if you are struggling to love others, and we all do, right? I do as well. But if you're struggling, then here's why. It's because you are too busy paying off your debts. You're too busy trying to earn points before God and other people. That is what you're focused on. And as you're focused on that, you are not living free. And because you're not living free, there's no love. You're too busy paying off your debts, earning points. Everything's about, oh, what am I getting? Do you see what I'm doing? So you need to come, we need to all come back to the throne of grace. Okay, we need to receive the freedom that is already ours. See, Jesus, he's paid off all your debts. Right? You are free. I'm talking about all the wrong you've done that you feel bad about. And let's be honest, you have wrongs you've done that you still carry. You have guilt. Okay, it pierces your conscience. When someone asks about that area, you don't really want to talk about it. It is painful. I'm talking about that area. All the wrongs you've done that you feel bad about, all the guilt you carry around, all the joyless obedience that you're slaving away under, yes, sure, I'm a Christian, I'll come to church, sure, I'll come out to that CG, yeah, sure, I'll sign up. It's the grind again, right? I'm just grinding, grinding. Why? Well, because I'm a Christian. I'm talking about that. Christ has set you free, brothers and sisters, he set you free. By the way, at infinite cost to himself. We sing several songs about it, but the blood. Think about Jesus on the cross. Again, you're not walking out of a prison yard because you paid off your time. But he gave his life so that now you could walk free. Okay, how does that affect you? Think about that. How does that change the way you even have relationships with others? You're going to love. You're going to love. So we need to receive that freedom again. We need to receive his love again. Let it humble you. Let it make you grateful. And as you do that, you're going to begin to love. Your love will rise up. But here's another thing. If you want to love your neighbor, there are desires to fight. There are desires to fight. Look at Galatians 5.15 and 17. But if you bite one 
another and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So earlier, Paul said the gospel sets us free, amen, from legalism, from being under the yoke of the law. But in these verses, Paul warns us now of another thing that can enslave us. So Paul said, don't get enslaved again to the law, but here, Paul mentions something else. He says, don't be enslaved again to the flesh and the desires of the flesh, because that will also cut off your love for your neighbor. It'll cut off your love. So here Paul is talking about the flesh, the desires of the flesh. And what is the flesh? Well, the flesh is just a natural part of us without Jesus Christ. It's what comes most natural to us in our human reasoning. So have you ever like tried to figure out things all on your own without Jesus? No thought about God. You're not praying. You're just trying to figure things out. Most likely you're in your flesh. It's a natural part of us. Things that come natural to us in our human reasoning, our human emotions, okay? There's no spirit of God filling you. You're not even thinking about God and just emotions are flaring, right? They're just, that's probably the flesh. We're also talking about your human willpower. Okay, I'm going to make this decision. I'm going to go here. I'm going to do that. And again, no thought about God, no prayer. That's again, probably your flesh. The flesh is what we are focused on and trusting in without Christ, all on our own. You know, I heard this definition, but the flesh is anything in my own power under my own guidance. Anytime you are under your own power, I'm doing it, and it's under your own guidance, I'm going to decide you're in the flesh. Absolutely. This is completely the flesh. And the flesh is not a static thing. Don't think about a lump of clay just sitting there, but the flesh is dynamic. What do I mean? It's brimming with desires, nonstop, bubbling up. In fact, the word desires here, epithumia, it means like overflowing rivers, overflowing the banks. Okay, that's the image I get. It is, it is a wild and crazy river where the water is constantly overflowing its banks, and that is a picture of the flesh. Okay, it's not just something sitting there. It is bubbling and raging with all these desires all the time, and that's why Paul says the flesh, people in the flesh, are biting and devouring one another. They are consuming one another. Okay, the, those terms are actually uh, terms that describe wild bees. That's where Paul's you know, drawing it from. These are terms to describe animals. There's kind of an animal-like quality about these desires. They're instinctual, right? You're not really thinking about them. You just do them. They're instinctual. And we've all been there. It's like, why did I say that, right? Have you ever asked yourself, why did I say that? Okay, why did I do this or that? Well, it's because these desires are bubbling up. And so this is the flesh, and the flesh is instinctually always what? Focus on the self. It is always radically concerned about the self and nothing else. It is always about what the self wants, what the self doesn't have, what the self should get. It is always about the self. What is somebody saying about the self? Right? Is somebody criticizing the self? Is somebody not respecting the self? I mean, it is always about the self. And so this is the picture that Paul paints. And ultimately, he says, these desires and this flesh, radically centered on the self, keeps us from doing the things we want to do. Okay, what, what is that? That's the definition of slavery, right? That's slavery. A slave is what? A slave is a person who can't do what he wants to do, but rather he has to do what somebody else wants him to do, right? That's basically what a slave is. We, we don't have to get complicated here. And so when Paul says it keeps us from doing the things we want to do, what's he talking about? Slavery. This is another kind of slavery here. Okay, this isn't good slavery, indebted to love. This is another kind of slavery. Paul's saying don't go back to that. This is slavery. Okay, you're going to have to obey these desires. Okay, that's how these desires are in the flesh. Apart from Christ, we must do what these desires want us to do. Again, let's be honest. Okay, many, many, many people these days, they struggle with looking at things online, on the computer. Why can you not stop? Even if you know mentally this is destructive, this is no good, it's embarrassing as heck. If anybody knew about this, I would, I would just completely hide. And yet you can't stop, right? So many people, I'm not saying you, you, I'm just saying in general. Why? Why can people not stop? Because they're enslaved. Okay, others, they are just constantly proud, right? They're, it's just all about them. It's all about how people see them, what people are not seeing about them. It's just all about them, right? 
And why can't they not, not stop? Even if they know, oh gosh, yeah, this is probably not the, good, the greatest good in my life. Why, why can they not stop? Because they're enslaved to them. And so apart from Christ, we have no power okay, to stop, even if we mentally agree we shouldn't. You know, it's always interesting, but when I'm talking to a non-Christian and they find out I'm a pastor, it's always interesting to me how they kind of look at me weird, almost kind of like they don't understand, like, why would you go do that? I remember one family member literally looking at me going, Roy, I feel sorry for you. Why would you go do that? Right? You have your whole life ahead of you. You're a college student. Why would you go into ministry and be a pastor? And so these people, they struggle to find the relevance of the gospel. Why would, why would I devote my life to teaching and preaching this thing called the gospel? And yet, it's always interesting to me because as they speak, as they're saying those words to me, literally, their lives, I know, because I'm like this too, without Christ. Their lives are enslaved to the desires of their flesh. They're literally sitting there saying these words to me. I don't understand why you would give your life to this. And yet, they're enslaved to their flesh, the desires of their flesh. They have no power to overcome them. And the only thing in this world that can help them overcome it is the gospel. And yet they don't understand why it's relevant. Well, this is why Jesus and the gospel are forever relevant to all people in every generation. It is always relevant, right? The Bible never wears out. It is always applicable to every people in every time. It's because we are all enslaved. How are you going to overcome that, brothers and sisters? How are you going to move on from here and begin to live a life where these desires drop away and you're going to live a victorious life, a life that you're proud of, a life where you can look at people and say, follow me as I follow Christ. How are you going to live in that way? You can't. You're enslaved. You're a slave. You must obey these desires until Christ sets you free. And then there's a different story. But without Christ, we cannot overcome these desires. We cannot love others truly and consistently. Okay, our flesh won't allow it. And even if our bodies are dragged right into a situation where there's an opportunity to love, even then our desires keep us from loving others. Okay, this, is how, this is how sick we are. You know, I've seen this many times at different settings, but you know, I, I can't even think of a particular one. I've just seen it many times. But imagine like an outreach that a church is having and several people from the church go to this outreach. They go into a senior center, maybe something like this. And there are a bunch of seniors there and they decide to, you know, bring them food, make them lunch, sing some songs for them, share the gospel, maybe even play games, pass the time. And I've literally seen this where during that time, after about 30 minutes, 45 minutes, you look over into the corner and there's a guy standing there and literally, we're here to love, right? And this guy's looking at his watch, and he's sighing. <sighs> right? And even if he smiles occasionally as people walk by, I mean, everyone knows, like, this guy doesn't want to be here. He wants to go home. He wants to go home. He's looking at his watch. Like, when is this over? Even as his body was dragged there, right? I mean, he, it's like, you're here. I mean, there are people right in front of you who need love. I mean, you can love them. I mean, you're just right here, and yet the desires of the flesh keep him. He's enslaved. Maybe this might be an example that's more relevant to you, but, but how many times have you ever, like, talked to somebody, and they're really struggling? They're like, hey, man, you got a, you got a moment? And they start sharing, right? And then you're like, whoa, this is a longer story than I thought. And, and then this person's, like, sharing and sharing and sharing. And then what happens? You start tuning out, right? You're, you're literally right in front of a person, you have an opportunity right in front of you to show love, right? Something we should do anyway, right, as Christians. We need to love one another, and yet even in that moment, as these words are coming into your ears, words of need, words of help, okay, please help me, like we're just tuning out. Our mind's drifting to something else, right? Again, what is that? That's the flesh. It's always radically centered on the self. Even as that opportunity is right in front of us, in front of our nose, we struggle to love. And so this is our condition. Well, then what do we do? Okay, how exactly then can we be set free from this kind of slavery and then be in another kind of slavery where we're indebted to love? How, how can we be set free? Well, again, the answer is the gospel, right? It's Jesus. And specifically is what some Bible teachers call gospel repentance. So we talked about gospel freedom. Now I want to talk about gospel repentance just briefly. But repentance in general is 
something that you don't just do when you fall down, right? Occasionally, but it's something you do daily to move forward. I like what one pastor said, but he said all of the Christian life is repentance. I think Martin Luther said that. But all of the Christian life. So repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of life, and it is something we do continuously and daily, and yet not all repentance is the same. There are different kinds of repentance. But what kind of, one kind of repentance is man-centered repentance. Okay, man-centered. And I think a lot of Christians get caught up in this. But it's repenting because we feel bad for getting caught. The only reason why we come before God and say sorry is because now we got caught and we don't feel good. It's also repenting because we don't like the consequences of sin. Oh, God's going to hurt me. God's going to punish me. God's going to, you know, do something. And we don't want that, and so we come and repent. It's driven by fear. It's also repenting because we don't want God, or we want God to bless us. So not only do we not want punishment, we want his blessing. So we're driven to repent. And this kind of repentance is always a reminder that we don't measure up, right? That's why we're kind of coming to God now. It's like, gosh, I screwed up. And so I don't want to do this often because I don't want to be a screw-up a lot, but occasionally I'll come to God and repent. So you know what happens? We avoid this kind of repentance. As much as possible, we don't want to repent. Repentance is a bad word. But that is not gospel repentance. That's a man-centered repentance. But in contrast, gospel repentance is completely different. In the same way, gospel freedom is totally different from a, you know, worldly freedom. Gospel repentance is totally different from man-centered repentance. But this kind of repentance is God-centered. He is God-centered. This kind of repentance happens because you know, right? You've heard the gospel and now you have received into your heart, yes, I am righteous forever in God's eyes because of what Jesus did. The grade he earned while he was here on the earth, it's been written into my report card. Whoa, how did that happen? That's God's grace. He wrote it into my report card. So now whenever God looks at my life, A, A, A plus, I am righteous forever in his eyes. We are already loved by him, approved by him forever. Again, the relationship Jesus earned, the relationship he has with the Father, now has been given to us. We've been adopted. It's my relationship. We can never lose his blessings. Why? Because we can never be condemned. This is the gospel. And now, because of that, when we sin, what happens? We don't repent because of the consequences of sin. We don't feel bad because, oh yeah, I got caught. There are bad things that are going to come in my way, to my way. No. But rather, we feel bad and we repent because of the way it affects God. Right? This is a God-centered. David said, you and you alone have I sinned against God. It's like, really? Are you kidding me? You raped a woman and then killed the husband? And you only sinned against God? But what David is saying is, in comparison to who I offended, I offended you more than anyone, God, against you and you alone. It's a hyperbole. You alone, God. And so this is what gospel repentance is focused on. It's like, God, yes, I offended a lot of people, I've hurt people, but you, you're the one that I've grieved, right? You're focused on that. Why? Because you're the one who's given the most to me. Everything I have is from you. So gospel repentance is focused on God. It's focused not on how much we don't measure up, but it's focused on how much God loves us regardless. So then what happens? That motivates us to obey him. You don't just go, whew, okay, I missed that bullet. I dodged that bullet, right? I repented, and now that judgment's not coming. Now I'm going to go back to doing my thing. No. You repent, and you go, okay, God, I grieved you. I wanna mo- I'm motivated to obey you now. So do you see the picture? It's totally different. Okay, the motivation is different. The goal is different. Everything is different. And so in the same way I asked earlier, are you struggling in loving others? If you are, maybe you're busy earning, earning points, paying off debts. Well, same question. Are you struggling to love others? Well, if you are, then maybe you're too wrapped up in man-centered repentance and trying to live your Christian life your own way and your own strength is all the flesh. And then when you slip up, oh, God, please don't, don't judge me, right? Don't hurt me. Maybe it's too much of that kind of repentance and not enough of gospel repentance. So do you understand how much Christ has set you free? Okay, we're coming to a close, but there's one more. There's a power to walk in. Okay, there's a power to walk in, and this is where we truly get the power to love. But look at Galatians 5, 16 through 18. 
But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So here, Paul, ah, so amazing. But after talking about the slavery under the desires of the flesh, we have no power to overcome them, Paul says, look, because of Jesus Christ now, you have this new kind of power. Yes, you were under this wicked power, the flesh, before, but now you have this new power. And look at how opposed they are. It says the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. Okay, the spirit is the new power. And the desires of the spirit, yes, the spirit also has brimming desires. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, then you're not like that anymore. You're no longer under the law. You have the power to now love and obey. And so just briefly, we don't have time to go into this in depth, but what is walking by the Spirit? Paul says, if you're walking by the Spirit, you have this power. Well, what is that? Well, here's a definition that I came up with. I hope it's true. I hope it's correct. But walking by the Spirit is the way you live your life moment by moment while being filled by the Spirit. Okay, that is walking by the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit is the way you live your life moment by moment throughout the day as you are filled by the Spirit. Well, what is being filled by the Spirit? Well, being filled by the Spirit, and brothers and sisters, please, oh gosh, if I could just even pray and zap the fullness of the Spirit into each and every one of you, I would, because that would just flip your life upside down. You'd be like, this is Christianity? I thought I had Christianity, but this is Christianity. It's radically different, brothers and sisters. But being filled with the Spirit is like being filled with alcohol. That's kind of the comparison Paul made in Ephesians 5, right? He says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Why does he make that comparison? Not because they're the same thing, but because they're different, but they're similar. But when you're filled with alcohol, what is happening? You are under the influence of alcohol, right? Have you seen people drunk at a wedding? There was a guy named Roy. It was a very uncomfortable experience, but I was at a wedding, and the MC's name was Roy, same name as mine, and then he got smashed, and then people started texting, going, dude, Roy's on the table, smashed, right? He's, like, drinking, like, you know, 10 kegs. I'm like, dude, he has the same name as me. It was very awkward. But this guy, Roy, right, he was smashed, and he was actually very funny. He was a fun guy to be around when he's drunk. But why was he on the table? Why was he acting so funny and goofy? It's because he was under the influence of alcohol. So then when the Bible says don't do that, that is wicked. Rather, be filled with the Spirit. What is the Bible saying? Be under the influence of the Spirit. Let the Spirit control you. That is being filled with the Spirit. So I don't know how you define it, baptism, you know, whatever else it might, it might be. It is being under the influence of the Spirit. Same thing with anger. When you're filled with anger, what's happening? <laughs> you're under the influence of anger. Same thing with the Spirit. So once you're filled with the Spirit, you're under the influence of the Spirit. And how does that happen? Ask him, Holy Spirit, can you fill me? Well, first, before that, acknowledge you need him. And then you ask him, Holy Spirit, I need you today. I can't live this Christian life alone. I need your filling. And then you act. He lives your life as if that prayer was answered, and it most likely was. Begin to live your life, Right? And as you do that, then you are walking by the Spirit. Why? Because you are filled by the Spirit. Again, walking by the Spirit is the way you live your life moment by moment while being filled by the Spirit. Now, we're going to bring this to a close, but what does this have to do with love? Well, it has to do with love because what does the flesh do? Always turn you inward. That is the definition of sin. It is curving inward. So you are living for yourself. It is all about the self, but now you are under the influence of the Spirit. What does the Spirit do? The Spirit leads you outward, not draw you inward, but leads you outward now to love. And by the way, not only love those who are easy to love, but the least. You know, I love how in the Bible the Spirit is often compared to water. John 7, John 4, the woman at the well. Jesus repeatedly compared the Spirit to water. And what happens when water comes down? This past week, we had a beautiful rainfall, amen? We're praying for more. But my daughter and I, we went out into the rain. My daughter loves the rain. She had a little umbrella, so cute. I had to chase after her. But she's like, Daddy, look at the water. But, but what was happening to the water on our street? We live on a slope. It was rushing to the lowest point, right? You know that. 
Anytime water is poured out, it goes to the lowest point. And so I feel in the same way, I don't think it's a stretch, to say when you are filled with the Spirit and now you are walking by the Spirit, going moment by moment throughout your day with the Spirit, what's going to happen? The Spirit will lead you like water to the lowest points. What do I mean? What do I mean? To the lowest people in deepest need. The water is going to flow there. It's not going to just take you to the friends that you love being with regardless. I mean, you can do that in your flesh. Your flesh already wants that. But it's going to take you to the people like, oh, my gosh, that guy again? He's kind of annoying. I keep seeing him at work or campus. But today I'm filled with the Spirit. I'm going to have lunch with him. Right? Really? Help me to move today? Today's my day, my one day of rest. I just had such a hard week. Finals, three finals or three midterms, let's say. You're just starting school. Right? Three midterms or I just had this project at work. Really? This weekend? But you're filled with the Spirit. It goes to the lowest point. Sure. I mean, I'm the only guy with the truck, right? <laughs> it's like, sure. It's like, I will help you. I will serve you. And so here's the final question. But are you filled with the Spirit? Right? Every morning, do you wake up acknowledging your need and then asking? Probably not. And the reason why I say that is because I don't either. <laughs> Sometimes I remember. But do you acknowledge your need and ask for the Spirit to fill you? And then do you act? Do you live your day as if it's true? And it most likely is. You know, I'm going to close with this story, but I saw uh, this past week a beautiful example of this, and it's from uh, the life of Francis Collins. I know that uh, some people have political views on, on him, and so I'm not making any comment politically, but Francis Collins, you're like, who's that? But he's basically the director of the NIH. He used to be the National Institute of Health. He was also the head of the genome, Human Genome Project. He was the head scientist that mapped the whole human genome. Okay, so he was the scientist for that, and he's a committed Christian. So Francis Collins. Um, and he was also involved heavily with COVID and the response for COVID, and there's a lot of political things, you know. I'm not making comments on that. But Francis Collins, he shared this story, or somebody else actually shared about it regarding him. But he was one time uh, having this debate with Christopher Hitchens. Do you guys know who he is? But he was this very, very kind of... I don't know, difficult person, a difficult person who attacked Christianity. He wrote a book called God is Not Great. That was the title of his book, God is Not Great, uh, and how religion has ruined everything, is the poison of the mind. I mean, he said all kinds of stuff. But Francis Collins had a debate with Christopher Hitchens, and I believe Collins was filled with the Spirit. But afterwards, they began to talk, and they kept talking, and then he actually said they became close friends. And they liked seeing each other, and they liked talking. But Hitchens was still very, very against Christianity, but Collins over, overlooked all that, and he was, he was friends with Hitchens. And then eventually, Hitchens, uh, a few years ago, he was diagnosed with esophageal cancer, which is cancer of the esophagus, right? And so he only had a very short time to live. And during that time, Collins, he pulled all the brakes, but using all of his influence and all the access he had, he actually took some of the tumor cells and, and mapped all the, the genetics of those tumor cells. He actually, you know, uh, got some sort of a targeted treatment for Hitchens. So, I mean, he really pulled the stops. And because of that, and this is somebody else's testimony, Hitchens lived a little bit longer. He lived like maybe three or six months longer because of all the things Collins did for him. And I was really moved by this, but the person who actually shared that story was Dawkins, who is another really difficult atheist, right? He said even worse things about Christianity. But you know what Dawkins said in this video? He's like, Collins, I knew what you did for Hitchens, and Hitchens was my friend too, and I just want to say on behalf of our community, thank you. I was like, wow. Dawkins said, thank you. Thank you for what you did for my friend. And so when I saw that, I'm like, you know, this is great because I'm going to preach on love, and this is love, right? This is what the Spirit does. These are the kinds of things the Spirit will lead you to do. My enemy, the person who directly attacks my most cherished beliefs, yeah, go to him. Okay, serve him. Lay everything out for him. Help him. Help her. Right, go to the lowest point. Amen? So this is how the gospel leads us to love. Okay, let's, let's bow before the Lord. Father God, we just come before you today, Lord, and Father... I could only hope and pray 
that some of this made sense, some of it connected, that Jesus, you took out all the breaks and you laid your life down. You put yourself in front of that runaway train. You were struck instead of us. You gave up your life so that now we can be free. And not free to just go and do whatever we want, but free to love. We are now debtors of love. We're indebted. Jesus, you gave everything for me in love. Now I have this debt to love everybody and anybody around me as much as I can by the power of your spirit. So Lord God, help us. Help us to do this, especially in the last days. We are living in increasingly difficult times. So Lord God, please help us. We love you. We thank you. Only you can do it, Lord. Fill us with your love. Fill us with your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, let's just come before the Lord um, as we do every Sunday. And we're going to just spend a brief time uh, just asking God, God, please. Come back to his throne of grace. Ask him to fill you again with love. Ask him. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Come back to the cross and say, Lord Jesus, I come back to you. I need your love. Fill me with your love today. When you're filled with the Spirit, by the way, you're also filled with his love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. It's the first fruit or the first characteristic of the fruit that's mentioned. The fruit of the Spirit is love. So just simply receive. Ask God, God, fill me with your Spirit and fill me with your love as I come to the throne of grace. Thank you, God. We must love one another. We have to. It's not an option it's not something that we can push off until I graduate college, really, or until I get through this busy season at work, or until I raise my kids and they're older, really. No, we must love God. We must love one another. We live in the last days. Let's just come before the Lord. Thank you, God. will test you. He will give you an opportunity to love him and love others. Maybe even this week, he's going to give you an opportunity. He tests us. So Heavenly Father, we come before you right now. Thank you, Lord. So, Lord God, we just come before you, Lord, and we thank you. What else can we say, Lord? You gave everything to us. We thank you. But 
but we also want to say, Lord, forgive us. Lord, we want to come with true repentance, not a repentance driven by guilt or fear of being punished, but a true repentance. We repent because we grieved you. Lord, more than anyone else, Lord, to you and against you have I sinned. Because, Lord, you love me unto death. And, Lord God, I have not been grateful. Lord, I've been grinding away, trying to pay off my own debts, trying to earn points before you, before people. Lord, I'm, I'm just, I've lost sight of what you did for me, Lord. So, Lord, I come back to you. Lord, I repent that I have not been living a life marked by your love. That when people look at me, they may be confused, but they say, but man, there's something about you. You seem to be really a person of love. Is it because you're a Christian? Is that why? Jesus said, they will know you by your love, that you are my followers by your love. So Lord God, forgive me. I, I haven't been that kind of testimony or witness as well. Father, please, we all need help. But Lord Jesus, you have grace today, so we thank you. Lord, even today, Lord, you can flip that completely around. You can fill us by your spirit. You can begin to fill us with your love. And then send us out to love others. Thank you, Father God. Please, please do it, Lord. Do that work in me. Do that work in us. Do it in these last days. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Let's rise for final worship.